following podcast is recorded and produced by the Podcast Precinct in affiliation with the network at BICBP-radio.com. The Podcast Precinct. Consistency. Creativity. Culture. I want $200,000 in unmarked $20 bills. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Get In Loser, we're starting a podcast. So, it's your boy Cheetah here. It's your boy Chop. So, uh, we uh, we got a pretty good episode for you guys this week. Something that uh, I've been very excited to talk about, it's a topic, well, a mystery that uh, I've been obsessed with since I was a kid. Uh, there's not a whole lot to the actual story itself. It's very kind of a quick story, but we're going to fill up the rest of that time with, you know, theories of what people think actually happened, uh, you know, somewhat talk a little bit about the investigation behind, you know, what they tried to, what they worked with, with what they had. But, uh, yeah, if, you know, if you guys are wondering what we're talking about this week, we're diving into the case of D.B. Cooper. That's right, you heard me. D.B. Cooper. First known as Dan Cooper, but because of a miscommunication in the news, they named him D.B. Cooper. What, D.B. Cooper? D.B. Why not Davy? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you shut the fuck up. But, yeah, uh, so, yeah, that's what we're gonna, we're gonna cover a little bit of D.B. Cooper this week. Uh... You know, we're gonna we'll go over a little bit of a rundown of what exactly happened for you guys who don't know, and then uh, we'll try to dive into the investigation that they made around it. Uh, talk a little about the theories of what people think actually happened, and then we'll also talk a little bit about what this case, like how this case, kind of changed. You know, because it did have uh, somewhat of an impact on. You know, the way that we fly and the way that, you know, we are in, like, airports today. So, uh, it's a very exciting topic for me, you know. Like I said, I've been obsessed with this since I was a kid. I'm not really even sure how I got into this, you know. Honestly, I kind of just heard about it one day and I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, this is fascinating. And that was one of my very first, like, you know, this was... This was kind of like me dipping my feet into the lake of like, you know, like big mysteries, conspiracy theories, stuff like that, you know. So this kind of D.B. Cooper case kind of started it all for me. So, Yo, D.B. Cooper started moving the movie without a pedal. I literally told this dude before we came here today that we're not going to mention that. What's the first thing he does? Mentions it. <laughs> hey, it's a good movie with Seth Green. If uh, You don't even know who they are. Yeah, the fuck I do. Seth Green, uh, Matthew Lillard, Matthew Lillard, the, who, and Dax Shepard. Dax, man, that was a good, good. And Burt Reynolds. 
Oh, yeah. Burt Reynolds played Bear Man? Yeah, he played the guy who was actually D.B. Cooper's friend. Who they, you know, he supposedly did the job with. He was waiting for D.B. to meet up with him to get him so they could split the money. But that'd, he never found him. That could be a possible idea. Davy's friend. Shut the fuck up. All right. Well, unless Chop has anything else to, uh, you know, cut me off about real quick, we're going to dive into, you know, the basics of what happened that night. The night of... The night that made D.B. Cooper famous. So, Chop, you got anything to say real quick before we dive into this? Yeah, we run um, soon. A couple weeks, we're going to be hitting our year at the precinct. And we're hitting our 50th episode soon, too. That's like four, three episodes from now. It's very exciting. Very exciting things happening over here. We got a couple. We're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We want to do something big for our first year and for our 50th. So, we're kind of we're kind of trying to... You know, figure out what that's going to be for both of them. But, uh, yeah, let's dive on into, uh, you know, the story behind D.B. Cooper. So, uh, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip north to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Cooper boarded the aircraft a Boeing 727-100 and took seat 18C and ordered a drink, bourbon and soda. Eyewitnesses described Cooper as being in his mid-40s wearing a, wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. Flight 305, approximately one-third full, departed at Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant situated nearest to him in a jump seat, attached to the aircraft door, the aircraft stair door. Uh, Schaffner, assuming the note contained a, lo- a lonely businessman's phone number, dropped it unopened into her purse. Cooper leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Uh, The note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a flat felt-tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it. But Schaffner recalled that it mentioned the bomb and directed her to sit in the the seat beside Cooper. Schaffner did as requested, then quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders and two rows of four, assumed to be dynamite. A wire was attached to the cylinders, and a large cylindrical battery was in the briefcase as well. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands were 200000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserves, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. So before we go any farther, this is what we know about D.B. Cooper so far. He purchased a ticket (coughs) under the name Dan Cooper with cash, gets on this plane with a Brack briefcase, 
and basically just hands this lady a note saying, hey, I have a bomb. I want you to sit next to me. This is what I want you to tell the pilots. So, like, just imagine, like, imagine being that lady. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're thinking, oh, this dude just gave me his phone number, whatever. I'll just throw it away, you know? And then, no, it turns out this dude's got a fucking bomb. Like, imagine being that lady just sitting there being like, yo, this motherfucker's got a bomb. How you know if it was not a bomb? Was what if it was roll flares and shit? Yeah, because she's gonna take the time to find out what it is. You know, that's true. But yeah, that's just crazy. It's just uh, this case is a big reason why now if you go and you buy a flight the same day, paying in cash, uh, they do like a security check on you. It's because of. This D.B. Cooper case because of what happened. So, I mean, that's just a little bit of the change that this case caused on, like, airlines. We'll go a little deeper into more of it in a little bit. But I just wanted to stop real quick and give you guys a little breather. Because there's a, you know, I mean, there's a lot to to read here. I don't want to just shovel it all out at once. I wanted to give you guys a little breather in between. But, uh, yeah, let's get back into it. Let's see what's going on with Schaefner. Uh, the captain, William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities that 35 other passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's pilot, David Nyrup, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. So, I mean, you guys got to think, this was 1971, so, you know, for them, getting together $200,000 wasn't easy, you know, I mean, it wasn't just, you can just walk to a bank, hey, give me $200,000. I mean, this was 1971, so... Drew, on the way here, you were saying... What does it equal out to now in today's like today's currency? What would it be? Uh, today's currency would be um, $1.3 million. That's insane. So, in our time, that would be like the FBI, you know, being like, oh, we need $1.3 million. It's not something you can just get right away, you know what I mean? Like, you, it takes time. You, you could get, like, a million dollars. I mean, you probably could get it right away, but I'm sure they also waited to try and drag it out, hoping that maybe this guy, you know, if they waited long enough, this guy would just, you know, would surrender himself. But, obviously, that was not the case. So, uh, flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, looks like Tacoma down there. As the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at that time from Seattle to Coma Airport. Schaefner described Cooper as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not consistent with the stereotypes, enraged, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political descendants, popularly associated with air piracy at the time. He wasn't nervous, Mucklow told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm the entire time. As Schaefner grasped 
the enormity of what was happening, Cooper reassured her. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Mucklow the change, and requested meals for the flight flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Mucklow asked Cooper if he had a grudge with Northwest Orient. Cooper replied, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. So, I mean, that's very interesting right there. <sighs> they asked him, you know, if this was a personal shot at the airport. He says, I don't have anything wrong with your airline. I just, you know, I have a grudge against just a grudge. So it's very interesting to note, like, why? What made him want to do this, you know? Like, what? What? Like, what forced him to the point of, you know, feeling like he should do this? Oh, because uh, he probably was a lonely little man. Or got rejected at the prom. Is everything that you got to say to do with being rejected? Oh, uh, no. So if you ever become a serial killer, we can just blame it on you being rejected by women? No. Yes. If I become a serial killer, you'd be the first victim. Okay, whatever you say. Yeah, what do you say, bud? Uh, FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most of serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and made a microfilm photograph of each of them. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel, instead demanding four civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. So, I mean, Cooper wasn't, he wasn't an idiot, man. He was smart, you know? He's like, no, I don't want your guy, I don't want the parachutes that you guys use. I want parachutes that I can, you know, I can operate myself manually. Because I don't want, you know, I don't want no funny business. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a, he wasn't an idiot. He was very smart. He, He had to have planned this out for very long before he executed it. He probably had every inch of this plan worked out already before he even started, which is very crazy to think about. Like, like you could have just walked by this guy in the street and the whole time in his head he's planning out how he's going to do this. And I think one of the things that uh, I like the most about D.B. Cooper is that he never hurt anybody. You know what I mean? He did this. He never hurt anyone. He was always very nice to everybody. You know, I think I liked, I think that's one of the things I liked the most about his case is that he wasn't a piece of shit. He was just a regular dude. You know, he was a regular dude who hijacked $200,000. But it's very interesting. But anyways, uh, Cooper was then informed that his demands had been met. The aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport in heavy rain around an hour after sunset. Cooper instructed Scott, the pilot, to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all windows and shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient's Seattle operations manager, Al Lee, approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might make his airline uniform for that of a police officer and delivered a cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow via the AFT stairs. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper allowed all passengers Schaefner and Senior 
flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. Hancock. <laughs> the refueling process was delayed. A second and later third truck was brought into complete refueling. An FFA, an FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which he denied. Cooper grew impatient, saying, This shouldn't take so long, and sent a note to the crew saying, Let's get this show on the road. Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast, southeast course toward Mexico City, at the minimum airspeed, airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots. That's about 115 miles per hour. At a maximum 10,000 feet. That's insane. God bless. So he made them fly 10,000 feet and only 115 miles per hour. And that was most likely to better his chances when he'd jump. <laughs> uh, he'd further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff and landing position. The wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized. First Officer William J. Radisak informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on a Reno-Tahoe International Airport as the refueling stop. Cooper further exited... Cooper further directed the aircraft takeoff with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended. Northwest's home office objected on grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the the air with the air stairs the AFT staircase deployed. Cooper eventually decided he would lower it once they were airborne and asked Mucklow to show him how to operate the stairs. Crazy, so like he's got his plan. He wants to head towards Mexico, but they tell him, "Hey, you know, we're not going to be able to make it all the way there. We have to stop again to refuel before we get there." You know, so I mean, it, there's no doubt in my mind that this dude had every single bit of this plan worked out in his head already. You know, what I mean, he had everything set up, ready to go, of what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, when he was going to do it. And I mean, in a way, that kind of makes him a genius, you know? Like, he's a very smart guy for the way he did it. Hell yeah. Not saying that it was right, but I mean... Without his uh, way of hijacking that plane, we will never have the modern-day security. You can't bring weapons on the plane. Back in the day, you used to bring, like, your little little handguns, your little knives. Yeah, it's because of cases like D.B. Cooper that we started getting... Higher security checks, you know, metal detectors. Hey, do you know, um, 1972, it was 12 high, uh, plane hijackings because of him? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of copycats after him. Then, um, I was, I was like, as you were telling us a little bit more information about it, I was just reading, like, 10 fun facts. Not fun facts, interesting facts. Because you, you know I'm a facts guy out oh, here. Oh, my God. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah, it was just, um, I, get, I got that page. That's all I had to bring up for now. Oh, my God. This guy has fucking facts, man. It's all he likes to do is just talk about the fucking list of facts. Hey, list of facts are fun. Drives me insane. All right. 
Uh, at approximately 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, Mucklow, Captain Scott, First Officer Radisak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. The two F-106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Force Base followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission also shadowed the 727 before running low on fuel and turning back near the Oregon-California state line. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the curtain closed. At approximately 8.50 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the AFT air stair apparatus had been activated. The pilots asked on the intercom if Cooper needed assistance. Cooper picked up the cabin phone and replied, No. This was the last message they ever heard from Cooper. The crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the AFD, AFT door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, a large enough choir trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. At some point between 10 o'clock and 11.30 p.m., the 727 landed with the AFT air stair still deployed at Reno Tahoe International Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police were on hand, although they did not approach the plane in case the bomb was still alive. Captain Scott confirmed Cooper was no longer aboard and an FBI, um, FBI bomb squad reported that the cabin was clean after a 30-minute sweep. So after they take off from the airport at 7.40 p.m., sometime between 8.13 and 11.30, Cooper jumped from the plane. But at this time, you know, he made them all stay in the cockpit, so they have no one knows exactly when he jumped out of the plane. They just know that at 8.13 p.m., they got a signal saying that the aircraft stairs were activated. And between then and 11.30 p.m., Cooper jumped from the plane, and they never saw him again. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I bet I bet he paid these guys off, too. He has to. Well, I mean, a lot of, you know what I mean? A lot of, they're all pilots and shit. They're not going to try and stop them, you know what I mean? It's not worth their life. And like I said, it wasn't like he was a killer. It wasn't like he was rude. He was very kind to everybody, very thoughtful, you know, even calmed down the stewardess. And, you know, he's just like, listen, help me get to where I want to go, and you're free to go. You know what I mean? I'm not going to hurt you guys. So, of course, a lot of these these pilots are probably going to be like, fuck, why would I bother even trying to fight this dude or anything? You know what I mean? Like, he's not hurting me. He's going to let me go regardless, you know what I mean? And I'm sure, like, FBI and shit, they weren't going to go after him because of this fear of this bomb. But at the same time, they're like, oh, you know. Either way, this guy's not going to get away. They didn't know that this dude was, you know, going to jump out of the fucking plane. Shit. If a motherfucker going to jump out of the plane. Oh, wait. No, here, here, here's the biggest concern. All right. He did all this shit. He probably planned it ahead. He probably went to the airport. He's like, all right, this this plane drops off here at this time, and this plane goes this time, then goes again, comes back. Oh, I'm sure he had an entire schedule of everything. I'm sure he planned this out for a while. Before but, I had- yeah, that was... Uh, before, uh, like before September 11, we used to go to the airport and say goodbye to your people you love. 
But you can't, like, only people who's allowed now is the people that's flying in the plane only. Yeah, I mean, this, what he did, it took a, you know, it made a very big effect on, you know, the way we fly today. You know, like we were saying earlier, now because of him, you know, we got, like, metal detectors, like, that. you know, you can't bring weapons on planes. You know, you go through such, like, heavy security check, which... Obviously, after 9-11, all of that stuff, like, amplified even more, but a good chunk of this stuff was also brought in after the D.B. Cooper case because of what happened. And then because of all the other copycats, as you call them, the next year, you know, that's the thing is, like, even after everything, you know, all these years later, the D.B. Cooper case is still just a legend, you know what I mean? And people talk about it still to this day. So regardless of what actually happened to D.B. Cooper, his name will live on forever because it'll always be talked about in some form, you know what I mean? Like Drew said at the beginning of the episode, you know, they said something about it in that movie Without a Paddle. It was, um, yeah, Without a Paddle was based, I'm not going to break the movie down, I'm just going to just, just say what the uh, beginning part was. Um, let, me just, let me open my uh, notebook up. Yeah, I said it. Um, after their friend Billy died, Tom, Jerry, and Dan going on a camping trip to honor his, his memories, the campsite, however, his special significant Billy believed famous airplane hijack Davy Cooper hid money in the area and his friends aimed to find it. Unfortunately, they are not prepared for the ventures after falling over a waterfall. They are left to the mercy of the wild animals. It was... The movie was funny. Well, basically... Yeah, basically in this movie, in that movie, you know, they go on a... They go on a trip in honor of their buddy to try and find D.B. Cooper's treasure, which was an adventure they had all planned out when they were kids. And in that case, they do find D.B. Cooper, but they find out that when he fell out of the sky, he fell into an old mine shaft, and he got stuck down there. He broke his legs, and he couldn't get out. But, um, so he never actually spent any of the money. He burned the money to stay alive, to, to keep him warm for as long as possible. Yes, um, I, did, I did look that up. They, uh, an eight-year-old boy in 1976 or so found, found the money. It was all. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Oh, he was? Yes. But anyways, yeah, like I'm saying, you know, I mean, a case like D.B. Cooper, it's going to show up in all, you know, all sorts of different, you know, pop culture and shit. Anybody that could talk about it's going to talk about it. Uh, most recently, uh, for all you Marvel fans out there, the show Loki, they even did a hint to D.B. Cooper where they made it seem like Loki, one of Loki's multi- multiverse or alter egos, was the real D.B. Cooper, you know, so... <laughs> I mean, uh, this show I used to watch with my mom, Leverage, they did an episode about D.B. Cooper, what they think really happened. So, I mean, you're always going to, something like this, it's always going to be around for years to come. You know, I mean, people are going to, people are always going to talk about D.B. Cooper. It's always going to be a thing. But, you know, the one constant in every story is, well, me, honestly, I don't think we'll ever actually know, like, concrete what, what actually happened. I don't think the case will ever be solved. 
obviously you're going to have people out there that are going to die on the hill of, oh, well, this is what I think happened. You know, here's my proof. But in, like, reality, like, real proof from, like, FBI proof, I don't think we're ever going to know what happened to D.B. Cooper. Hey, yo, you know how long it? There must not have been really no security cameras at the airport. I mean, it was the 70s. So, you know, I'm sure security wasn't very high back then. But, yeah, but now we're going to dive, we can dive into uh, the investigation that they did after, you know, the little bit of investigation that they tried to do after, you know, D.B. Cooper jumped. So, uh, basically, uh, FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two shroud lines cut from the canopy. Authorities interviewed witnesses, eyewitnesses of Portland, Seattle, and Reno. A series of com- composite sketches were developed, which where, I mean, if you know the D.B. Cooper case, you see the, you see the, uh, even if you don't know exactly the details, you see that, you see that, um, uh, that deposit sketch that they came up with, you immediately know, oh yeah, that's D.B. Cooper. That's how infamous his sketch has become. But uh, local local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Uh, He contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name for the same alias in a previous crime. But remember, when he bought his ticket at the airport, he went under the name Dan Cooper. He didn't get the D.B. Cooper name until there was a miscommunication in the news story, and that's when he became known as D.B. Cooper. But, uh, yeah, they went after this guy, the real D.B. Cooper, to see if maybe, you know, he had used his real name, which would have been fucked stupid. But uh, this, the real D.B. Cooper was quickly ruled out as a suspect. But a local reporter named James Long, rushing to an imminent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name. Oh, there you go. This is where it came from. With the pseudonym used by the hijacker, a wire service reporter... Uh, republished error, followed by other media sources, and that's when D.B. Cooper became the most widely remembered pseudonym. Uh, A precise search area was difficult to define as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft speed or the environmental conditions along the flight plan, which varied by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. An important variable was the length of time Cooper remained in the free fall before pulling his cord. Neither of the Air Force F-106 pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne black-clad human figure could easily have gone undetected. The T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. In an experimental recreation with the same aircraft used in the hijacking in the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the the open air stair 
and were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section and a brief change in cabin pressure described by the flight crew at 8.13 p.m. Initial explorations placed Cooper's Landing zoning within an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively, of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those countries or them counties, searched large areas of the mountain's wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake. The reservoir immediately to its east, no trace of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him, was found. What the fuck? So this guy literally just disappeared. They didn't see him jump. They have no idea where he landed. He literally just disappeared in the thin air. Like, that's insane. That may, That's what makes me think, like, if he didn't survive, why wouldn't they have found anything? You know what I mean? So he had to have survived. Or, right? the, or, or, or the Yeti got his ass. Oh, my God. Uh, the FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path. Uh, From Seattle to Reno, although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, Teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 United States Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers conducted another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 days in April. Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Ultimately, the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. So they found a whole different body of someone who had went missing weeks before the D.B. Cooper case. <laughs> Never found a trace of D.B. Cooper. Not one thing. Yo, what if D.B. Cooper was number real? I mean, that's a possibility, too. I'm sure there's a lot of theories that that is the case also. But it's crazy. Like, they find... They find a lady's body who had been missing, who had been murdered, went missing weeks before the case. But they never find a single trace of what happened to D.B. Cooper. Or whether the government is actually covering something up. <coughs> you never know. But uh, after that, after, you know, f- coming up with nothing on their search for D.B. Cooper, 
That's when they began searching for just the ransom money. Uh, and a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions. And to law enforcement agencies around the world, Northwest Orient offered a reward for 15 of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum $25,000. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. Two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was a hijacker. So before anything else, they'd found two men who had used $20 bills that had the same Serial numbers as the Cooper bills. And they used that to swindle a reporter out of 30 grand. So this was the first break that they had about the Cooper cases. These two $20 bills from these two random guys. What the fuck? So what were these guys just walking in the woods one day and they just found $40 laying on the ground? Or maybe Cooper paid these guys this $40 said, Hey, go do this. Get these people off my tracks. I mean, there's a lot of what-ifs. There's a lot of not knowing. That's why a lot of people don't even dive into the D.B. Cooper case because there's no real, like, you know, there's no definitive answer to what actually happened. It's all a mystery. It's like, it's like Jack Ripper. Yeah. but I We mean, don't know who the fuck Jack Ripper is. Yeah. But to me, that's what makes D.B. Cooper so fascinating. It's like the thought that, like, maybe one day, you know, fucking 30 years from now, maybe I'll finally get concrete evidence about who D.B. Cooper was and what happened. Yeah, you guys be locked up in a sand asylum. I told you, motherfucker, I told you. She cheated up in the padded room, so she cheated, okay? Well, I told you, I told you about Jonestown. I told you about David Cooper. No one will believe my ass. Shut the hell up. Uh, in early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon, Oregon J- Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the post-intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no general bills were found. Are you saying like $5,000 cash reward? reward? Yeah, if you bring in any of the bills with the same markings as Cooper's. And they found ones that were close, but none that were actually Cooper's bills. And then uh, in 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Global Identity Corporation, compiled with an order for the Minnesota Supreme Court and and paid the airline's 180,000 claim on the ransom money. So, I mean, after 1975, I mean, they kind of... Oh, God. There was nothing, really. They yeah. had nothing coming in. Yeah, just imagine we did found something that they offered us $5,000 back in 1974. That's roughly $30,000 right nowadays. That's insane. Dude, yeah, that's crazy. But uh, sub- subsequent analysts indicated that the original landing zone estimate was inaccurate. Captain Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, 
later determined that his flight path was farther east than initially assumed. Additional data from a variety of sources, in particular Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bowen, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, indicated that the wind direction factored into drop zone calculations had been wrong, possibly by as much as 80 degrees. Oh. So not where these guys, not where only were these guys off, but they're way fucking off. So they're searching an area that wasn't even close to where they think Cooper would have landed. Dude, Eighty degrees is not that bad. <clears throat> yeah, but farther east of where they were searching before. Hmm, something to add up. Exactly. Yo, what? What if I told you what? What is the government trying? To... I mean, you never know. But uh, this and other supplemental. Data suggested that the actual drop zone was south to southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of Washougal River. Washougal River. FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for the Washougal. The Washougal Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years. No... To date, no discoveries traceable to the hijacking have been reported. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens could have obliterated any remaining physical clues. So up until 1980, they still had no clue what happened to Cooper. Nothing. The only thing they had was those two $20 bills that those guys swindled that reporter with. That's it. That's the only trace they had of Cooper. Jesus Christ. And then a volcano erupts, and, you know, they're like, oh, well, maybe that got rid of any evidence we could have found. So, uh, on, officially, on July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources on manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related oh, excuse me, related specifically to the parachutes or the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The 66-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation. 45 fucking years. Holy yeah. fuck. This is when they closed the case. It had been 45 years when they closed the case officially. It has been... And that court... And that case file has been preserved for historical purposes as FBI quarters in Washington, D.C. And on the FBI website, all of the evidence is open to the public. The crime remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. So in 2016, 45 years after Cooper originally went missing, they closed the case forever. Or not forever, but they officially closed the case. And at that time, it was still the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. What the fuck, man? So Cooper went down in history. Still down in history. He's still in history. Man, we're talking about him right now in 2022. Still to this day in 2022, not a single person knows for sure what happened to D.B. Cooper. Or no one will confess. It's crazy. But uh, as far as physical evidence goes... Uh, there are three major pieces of evidence were found on the plane. A black clip-on tie, 
a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and an eight-filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. At some time after the hijacking, the cigarette butts were lost. In November 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the AFT stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near Logging Road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merlin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. Uh, Also on... Oh, okay, this is what Chop was talking about earlier. On February 10th, 1980, 8-year-old Brian Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Tina Bar, about 9 miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southeast of southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash totaling about $5,800 as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build a campfire. The bills had disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, but were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was need, indeed a portion of the ransom, two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. The discovery launched several new rounds of conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. Initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were founded on the assumption that the bill bundled the bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting tributaries. An Army Corps engineer hydrologist uh, noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been despo- deposited by river action, as opposed to having been deliberately buried. That conclusion, if correct, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin, nor tributary of the Lewis River, which feeds into the Columbia Well downstream from Tina Bar. It was also last lent credit credence to supplemental speculation that placed the drop zone near Washagol River, which merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. The free-floating hypothesis presented difficulties. It did not explain the ten bills missing from one packet, nor was there a logical reason that the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Physical evidence was incompatible with geologic evidence. Himmelsbach, that's the FBI agent that was working on the case, wrote that free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated. Geological evidence suggested, however, that the bills arrived at Tina Bar well after 1974. So three years after D.B. Cooper went missing. The year of a corps of engineers dredging operation on the stretch of the river, geologist Leonard Palmer of Portland State University found two distinct layers of sand and sediment between the clay deposited on the riverbank by the dredge and the sand layer in which the bills were buried indicating that the bills arrived long after dredging had been completed. 
In late 2020, analysis of the diatoms found in the bills suggest that the bundles found at Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in 1971. Only diatoms that bloom during springtime were found, placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. Jeez. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and the Northwest's Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 examples of evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2018, or 2008, for about $37,000. Yeah. Yeah, so this kid was eight years old, and years later, in 2008, Sold his fucking bills for thirty seven grand. Two thousand eight. Yeah, that's when he sold fifteen of the bills they let him keep. He sold them at an auction for thirty seven grand. The Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside the aircraft. So him finding those bills—that's the only substantial evidence they ever found in the DB Cooper case. And 45 years after D.B. Cooper jumped from that plane, that's when the FBI officially closed the case. That's insane. Yeah, what the fuck? Man? 45 years and they never found a single thing about what happened to him. Even longer now. Because they closed the case in 2016. And it's 2022 now. It's about 51 years. Yeah, and they still have no idea what happened to D.B. Cooper. Yeah, it's funny. My mom was born in 1971. <laughs> You know what's crazy is the year they closed this case is the year I started high school. You in high school, you mean? Yeah, I start. Yeah, I was. You know, I started high school in two thousand six. You said they closed it in two thousand sixteen. No, they. Cl- oh yeah, they did. My bad. Twenty sixteen. My bad. Twenty sixteen. You were working at Walmart. Yep. And now I was at the casino. No, wait, no. You were at the casino. Are you sure? Yeah. Because I was there. I was at the casino since. December 2014, and I'm still currently there. Yeah, nobody cares. I care. All right, listen. This is what the FBI, subsequent FBI disclosures of the case. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from the samples found on Cooper's tie in 2001. Though they later acknowledged that there is no evidence that the hijacker was the source of the sample material, the tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample, said Special Agent Fred Gutt. It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. The Bureau also made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 ticket, and posted a previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets, along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. The FBI also disclosed disclosed that Cooper had chosen the older of two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute and that from the two reserves parachute he selected a dummy, an unusable unit with sewn shut chute intended for classroom demonstrations although an experienced skydiver would have realized this was non-functional. He also used the cord from the functional parachute he jumped with to secure the money bag. 
In March 2009, the FBI discovered, disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including scientific illustrator Carol Aberzinsax and metallurgist Alan Stone, the group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, investigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies unavailable in 1971. Although they gained little new, little new information about the buried ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyze hundreds of particle, minute, hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using electron microscopy. Lipe, like lycopodium spores, likely from a pharmaceutical product, were identified as well as fragments from bismuth and aluminum. And to, in November 2011, Kay announced that the particles of pure and unalloyed titanium had also been found on the tie. He explained that titanium, which was much rarer in the 1970s than in the 2010s, was all that time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities at a chemical or at a chemical companies using combined with aluminum to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings weakly suggested that Cooper might have worked in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. In January 2017, Kay reported that rare, rare earth minerals such as cerium and Strontium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the tie. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project, suggesting the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Other possible sources of the material included factories that manufactured cathode Ray tubes such as the Portland firms Teledyne and Tektronics. So, kind of crazy. So yeah, these guys come in, calling themselves the Cooper Research Team, and they start finding all these other little particles on this dude's tie to try and figure out where DB Cooper might have worked and you know who he could have been, but. Ultimately, it didn't turn up much, really. Kind of just more questions. But before we dive into, you know, the theories and that, and, you know, who a couple of the suspects were, my hand on over my boy Chop over there, looking kind of bored, because you haven't been saying much. You guys know he loves talking. <laughs> so why don't you hit us with a few of them facts? I know you love the facts section, so go oh, ahead. Oh, God, just, just uh, what's my call it? Let me, just, let me just re-look it up again. Oh, my God. Come on, man. I set you up perfectly. You weren't even ready. Man. Yeah, wait. I, I am ready. So, are you really ready? Yes, I'm really ready. That? I got ten facts for you. He was never identified or found. Yep, we already knew that. I already knew that. His diplomacy sounds like James Bond. A spy. He had post 
as an agent working on a movie. That'd be kind of dope. Very well could have been a spy. There's a good chance he died while escaped. I don't know about all that, but teach their own. He have made. He may have given an interview with a local newspaper in like 1972. They could have. They would never know. He could have just been right under their nose the entire time. He became a pilot developer in the modern entertainer entertainment. Some of the money was found years later, as we were talking about. He inspired 15 copycat hijackers in 1972. That's crazy. 15. None of them ever as famous as D.B. Cooper. Nope. He changed aviation security uh, forever. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that, too. There's a chance he could still be alive today. I mean, you never know. That's just fucking crazy. So you got for us, Chop? Yep. All right, let's hop into a little bit of these theories. Uh, hold on a second. Got a couple theories here. Uh, 11 theories on the true identity of D.B. Cooper. Okay, hold on. Let me just find a couple of them. Okay, uh, the first guy they think it could have been was Jack Cufflet, who was the first place person who claimed to be Cooper. In 1972... A con man with a long criminal history, Conflet, Coughlet, was confirmed to have suffered injuries around the time of the hijacking. However, the FBI found so many inconsistencies in his story, they eliminated him. That didn't stop Coughlet from peddling a story to the major net- TV networks, who ultimately refused to give him a platform. And then next we have a guy by the name Kenneth Christensen. Kenneth Christensen had been a paratrooper and then a mechanic and a flight attendant for Northwest Orient Airlines, the airline Cooper targeted. He also resembled the composite sketch of the hijacker. A few months after the hijacking, he supposedly purchased a house with cash. In 2003, his brother Lyle saw a documentary on the Cooper case and became convinced that Kenneth, who died in 1994 was D.B. Cooper. The FBI didn't see enough evidence to investigate Kevin Christensen, so Lyle tried to stop, shop the story to Nora Ephron for film, which had never happened. It later came out that, unknown to, unknown to Lyle, Kenneth did not pay for cash, with, pay cash for his house. Oh, then another one. This is a kind of crazy one. Barbara Dayton. But here's why they thought it was Barbara. Barbara underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and changed her name from Robert. And changed her name to Robert. She later explained to friends how she had pulled off the hijacking by disguising herself as a man and then escaping scrutiny afterward as a woman. Dayton died in 2002. Her friends Pat and Ken Foreman published The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes, revealing what Dayton had told them years before. The FBI has never taken Dayton seriously as a suspect. Uh, Then another one, we have Lynn Doyle Cooper. Lynn Doyle Cooper, 
and his brother, Dewey Max Cooper, had the right name, lived in Oregon, and raised suspicion among their family members about the hijacking in 1971. Their niece, Marla, cooperated with the FBI and talked to the media in 2011. Marla Cooper, 48, cited memories from when she was 8 years old, first told ABC News this week that she recalled her uncle's planning something suspicious just before Thanksgiving 1971 at her grandmother's house in Sisters or Oregon. The two used walkie-talkies and left supposedly to go turkey hunting, she said. On Thanksgiving morning, Lynn Doyle Cooper, known to the family as L.D., returned to the home bloody and bruised, claiming he had been involved in a car accident, Marla Cooper told ABC News. Marla Cooper, who lived in Spokane at the time, said she overheard L.D. Cooper say, We did it. Our money problems are over. We We hijacked an airplane. Soon afterward, the FBI compared the DNA sample they have of the hijacker with that of L.D. Cooper's daughter. He had already died, and there was no match, and the feds dismissed him as a suspect. (laughs) Now, the next suspect, William Gossett. William Gossett was a veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars, a survivalist, and a parachutist. He told his sons and a local judge in in San Diego that he committed the 1971 skyjacking. His son recalls Gossett having an unusual amount of money at Christmas in 1971. His son Greg recalls Gossett having an unusual amount of money at Christmas in 1971, and Gossett's physical characteristics matched the descriptions from eyewitnesses. Gossett died in 2003. Galen Cook who had been investigating the Cooper case on his own for years, decided that Gossett was most likely D.B. Cooper. Cook said he he has provided Gossett's fingerprints and DNA to the FBI, but the agency said there is no evidence to link Gossett with the case. Uh, Now, the next one is a guy named Robert Rackstraw. Robert Rackstraw was an early suspect in the case due to a series of letters he mailed to the FBI shortly after the hijacking, one of which identified Rackstraw. According to Rolling Stone, Rackstraw was a former Special Forces paratrooper, explosives expert, and pilot with about 22 different aliases. He was eliminated as a suspect by the FBI in 1979. His elimination was controversial amongst the investigation investigating agents, and he remained, for many, the most viable suspect in what remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in the United States. Filmmaker and author Thomas Colbert and a team of investigators studied the evidence for years and decided Rackstraw was their guy. In 2016, Colbert published a book on his theory, The Last Master Outlaw, and produced a documentary on Rackstraw called D.B. Cooper Case Closed for the History Channel. I actually watched that special on the History Channel, and it was bullshit. They didn't find anything. They just went with the very first thing that they could come up with. But uh, Rackstraw, who lives in California, was approached by reporters in 2017. He neither conformed nor denied the information, but told reporters to verify their facts he passed away in July of 2019. 
Uh, number seven, we got Robert Richard Lepsey. Uh, what if it were somebody who had already been missing for a while? There were no missing reporters, rep- persons reported Thanksgiving week in 1971 that fit the description of the hijacker, according to the FBI. But what if it were someone who had already been missing for a while? In 1969, Robert Richard Lepsey was a grocery store manager in Grayling, Michigan, when he disappeared. He left work for lunch and is never seen again. Lesby's car was found a few days later at an airport, unlocked with the keys in the ignition. An investigation relieved, revealed some money missing from the store and a man who caught a flight to Mexico. While researching... While researching the case 30 years later, Ross Richardson noticed a strange resemblance between Lespie and the man known as D.B. Cooper. Could he have disappeared twice? There is no concrete evidence to link the two besides the resemblance and strange stories. So the thing is, with a lot of these guys, you know, I'm not going to read through every single one of them. A lot of them are mostly just people that claim they're D.B. Cooper, but they actually weren't, you know. I mean, everybody was trying to claim to be D.B. Cooper because it was the biggest thing at the time, you know. It was huge. But I do want to read this this next guy to you guys real quick because this one's very interesting. Uh, a guy named John List. John List is best known as a murderer who killed his entire family on November 9th, 1971 after shooting his wife, mother, and three children. He fled, assumed a new identity, and was not caught until 1989. Some people have speculated that List committed the hijacking when on the run from police. List denied being D.B. Cooper as he admit, even as he admitted to the murders. So, I mean, they had all these different people that would come forward and say, hey, you know, or these people's families that come forward and say, hey, you know, I think my uncle or my dad or my brother, I think they're D.B. Cooper. None of them were ever concrete evidence tied to the case I think me personally I don't think they'll ever I don't think we'll ever know who D.B. Cooper was I think he survived I think he got away but I don't think we'll ever know he's probably living in Mexico right now he could be alive right now or he could could be dead years ago who knows I don't think but I don't think I don't think we'll ever know for sure and I think that is what makes it so great in itself is that we'll, we'll never know is the you know just that mystery behind it of who's DB Cooper? What happened to DB Cooper? Did he survive? Did he not? You know that one of that thing, that part of it right there is, you know that's that's my favorite part of it. But uh, another interesting thing is the guy who had originally worked on the case, the FBI agent Ralph Himmelsback. He spent the last nine years of his FBI career on the 1971 D.B. Cooper hijacking. And then he put it squarely behind him until someone else had brought it up. Uh, But reporters wanted to revisit what happened, especially in that month leading up to the anniversary. There were tipsters, too, always earnest, often deluded. They were just certain they had crucial information to crack one of the most famous crimes in American history. Then there was that one lady from Florida. Her name was Joe. She had a voice that sounded like a washing machine full of rocks. 
and once she got rolling, there wasn't much that could make her stop. Dro- Joe drove Rolf Himmelsbach's wife nuts. The way she'd called and go on about how the insurance insurance man she'd married confessed on his deathbed to being Cooper. She would call all, all the time, says Joyce, Rolf Himmelbach's wife. Uh, Joyce was Rolf's wife of 30 years from 1989 until his death in 2019 at the age of 94. She was the one who got him to start square dancing and to travel to Mexico and Maui. She liked the mustache he grew, letting it get long enough so he could curl it into a pair of points. Perfect for the barbershop chorus Rolf joined in Oregon. Joyce remains an absolute firecracker even now. No, especially now. And there were times she'd answer the phone and hear that rasp of voice on the other end and decide that this was absolutely not the time for one of those calls. Thanksgiving, Christmas, didn't matter, Joyce says. So I'd say, I'm sorry, we're very busy. We've got company over. Call back some other time. But this lady, this lady who kept calling Rolf Himmelbach's wife to try and tell him that she was married to an insurance salesman who confessed to be D.B. Cooper. That show I told you guys about earlier, that show Leverage, when they did an episode about D.B. Cooper, that's exactly their story, too, was that this guy... Or no, my bad. Their story on that show was that these two partners, these two cops, this guy like moved to like Oregon or something, and he became a cop. And years later on his like deathbed or whatever, his partner found out that this guy, that he had been working with D.B. Cooper this entire time. So, I don't know. It's very crazy. It's a very wild story. It's very interesting to me. Uh, I've always been very obsessed with the idea of, you know, who D.B. Cooper is. What happened to D.B. Cooper. But, I mean, obviously, like I said at the beginning, there wasn't, you know, there's not much to talk about when it comes to this case because there so much of it is a mystery. But I hope that if you do already know about the case itself, I hope, you know, we, uh, I hope we, you know, refreshed your uh, memory on it. And if you don't know about the case, I hope we got you, uh, you know, a little excited about it that you might want to research it yourself and look into it, you know? I've done it before. It's honestly, it's a it's a great thing to get into, but you know, I don't think we'll I don't think we'll ever know for sure. I don't think that answer will ever be. I don't think that question will ever be answered. But uh, before we head on out of here, what's the time check? Uh, one hour, ten minutes, and oh, fifteen perfect. seconds. But uh, before we wrap this up. This is what I'm going to leave you guys with. Uh, The question remains, who was D.B. Cooper? And did he survive that jump? But that, my friends, is a mystery that we may never solve. I'm going to head on out of here. So, cheat out. Chop out. Chop out. Thanks for riding along, losers. (laughs)